The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Good morning. It's good to be together as we come now to Acts chapter 19. And we're going to look at the full chapter this morning. If you do have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to it. If you want to grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you or scroll there to your phone, we will be reading the full chapter this morning. And I'm going to invite us to pray and ask for the Lord's help as we begin. You alone are Lord over heaven and earth and under the earth. And so, Father, we come now this morning wanting to see more of your glory, more of your grace, more of your beauty. Satisfy us this morning so that we would be changed and transformed into the likeness of your Son. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Does everyone know what a Venn diagram is? I think so. Most of us do. It's where you draw a circle and you have another circle and kind of the, the different sets that overlap and then there's kind of the whatever's in the center. If you drew a Venn diagram of all the things that are powerful in the world in one circle and then all the things that are precious in the world in the other set, whatever overlaps that is both powerful and precious, I would suggest or argue that there's not a lot in that middle. Consider some of the things that are powerful, like a lion, powerful hind legs, powerful jaw that can rip apart human flesh. It would overpower any one of us in the wild. Or say a nuclear warhead, untold amounts of devastation. That would be powerful. Or perhaps a firearm, destruction in the palm of one's hand. These things have force, can be explosive, and yet most of those things are not precious. You wouldn't show fond affection for any of those things. You wouldn't kind of hold it in high esteem. You would respect it, but you wouldn't treasure it. Or consider things that are precious, a brand newborn baby holding that little child in your arms, maybe a child, a grandchild, Maybe a long-awaited engagement ring. That's precious. Finally, maybe a love letter that you find from a deceased spouse. Something you would treasure for a lifetime. Maybe a gold medal from these Olympics. Something that you could hold on to for the rest of your life and point back to that particular moment. These are the things that are cherished and treasures. Whether it's a person or an object or a memory. These are the things that are cherished and treasured, but they're often not powerful. They don't possess authority or influence or, or strength to bring about change or, or transformation. And this morning, I would argue that when you draw the Venn diagram of all that is powerful and all that is precious, right in the center of that Venn diagram is the person of Jesus The main point of our passage, I think, in Acts 19, is Luke is trying to show us the infinitely precious worth of Jesus and the unrivaled power. 
power of Jesus. That's what I want us to see this morning. Behold the unrivaled power of Jesus over all things and the infinitely precious worth of Jesus. Consider the power of Jesus. How great is his power? All things in heaven and on earth and under the earth were made by him and for him and through him. Nothing exists that was not made by his hand. That is unrivaled power. And yet how precious is he? The very blood of the cross is what provides for us forgiveness of sins so that we can come to him. And all those who come to Jesus will never be pushed away. He's the pearl of great price that is treasured above all else. And so I think these two characteristics, these two traits are so important to have together in the person of Jesus. If you have one without the other, it's, it's not that impressive. If God, if Jesus was powerful but had no compassion, no sympathy, no tenderness, he, he, he would be a dictator and a despot. And yet if he was gentle and lowly but had no power in this world, he would be weak. And so my aim this morning is to awaken us to fresh praise and worship and delight in Jesus, who is both powerful and precious, that we would delight in the infinitely worthy name of Jesus. And we get that right in the text this morning in Acts 19, verse 17, where it says the name of Jesus was extolled. His name is praised and glorified and proclaimed and exalted. Now, before I jump right into the passage, let me just give one more word. Why is this important? Why is it important that we behold the power and the preciousness of Jesus this morning? I think it's this. There's often a saying that's throughout scripture and others have made the same saying. It's that we become what we worship. Have you heard that phrase before? We become what we worship. Ralph Waldo Emerson, a philosopher, said this about that idea. A person will worship something Have no doubt about that. We may think that our tribute is paid in the secret, in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. What we think about is what we will become. Then he says, therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we are worshiping is what we will become. And so this morning, a question I want to ask all of us is, what are we worshiping? What moves us? What brings us to tears? What gives us fresh awe? Maybe it's Caleb Dressel or Katie Ledecky. But I hope it's Jesus Christ this morning. So before we jump in, let me just mention one other thing. Acts 19 takes place completely in the city of Ephesus. Verse 1 of chapter 19 says Paul arrived in Ephesus. Acts 20 verse 1 says Paul leaves Ephesus for Macedonia. And if you read Acts 19, I think what's most striking in this chapter is actually how little Paul is mentioned. He almost plays a secondary role. He shows up in that first section, verses 1 through 10, but then he's just merely mentioned in the account about the sons of Siva 
and, and the riot that takes place in Ephesus, and we have to ask the question, why? And I think what Luke is doing this morning for us is he's trying to show us that it's Jesus that's on full display. See the power and the preciousness of Jesus. So this morning we have three scenes. I kind of alluded to that already. We get scene one in verses one through 10. That's a baptism. Then we get scene two, 11 through 20. That's a beating. And then scene three is a riot, but I needed to alliterate. So I'm calling it a brouhaha, which (laughs) my daughter said was a weird word. Uh, It's a French word, I think. So a baptism, a beating, and a brouhaha. That's 21 through 40. So look with me in your Bibles. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks." So a number of questions arise in this first scene. The first is, how did these disciples hear about John's baptism? Second is, how does Paul respond? And then what does this ultimately reveal about the power of God? And the answer to the first question, how did these disciples hear about John's baptism, is we're not sure. The text doesn't really tell us. It could be that John the Baptist had actually traveled all the way up to Ephesus, or maybe one of his disciples had at some point and and, and preached and, and baptized Perhaps some of them used to live down in Jerusalem. Whatever it is, we we don't really know, but it it says some disciples. So I don't think they're Christian disciples because we see later that they don't even know about the Holy Spirit, and it's doubtful that they know about Jesus. Now, Paul says John the Baptist referenced the Spirit and referenced Jesus. Where did he do that? Well, in Luke 3.16 when people were asking John the Baptist, are you the Christ? Are you the one? Are you the Messiah? What, what, what did John say in response? Well, Luke three sixteen, he says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the whole point of John the Baptist's ministry was to point to the one that was coming. He's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. He was an arrow pointing. That's what verse 4 is all about. Paul's point is John baptized, telling people to believe in Jesus who was to come. So what we see here is a deficient faith. These people don't understand Jesus. How does Paul respond? Verse 5 and 6. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. What likely took place is Paul then begins to 
preach and proclaim. This is what you need to know about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and what took place at Pentecost. And they say, okay, we believe. We're true disciples of John. And if John was pointing to Jesus, then we believe in Jesus. And so then he baptizes them. And to authenticate this work from heaven, God shows up in the power of the Spirit so that they begin prophesying and have ecstatic praise, speaking in tongues. Now, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus is not just some formula. It's not just, well, we did it in this name, now let's do it in this name. But it's to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Messiah, as the one who alone can bring forgiveness of sins. So Luke tells us in verses 8 through 10 that he continued speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading the Jews about the kingdom of God, and then later moving to the hall of Tyrannus and doing that for two more years. I think what that highlights is that Paul was committed to expounding, exposing, preaching, and proclaiming Jesus, reasoning from the scriptures to show people who Jesus was. And it says in verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus a little while longer because a wide open door for ministry has been given to me despite all the adversaries. So this opening scene highlights the power of Jesus to bring about saving faith. That whatever deficient faith is out there, the power of God comes in, breaks in, and brings about salvation. I think this ought to amaze us afresh. Because it's so easy to think that people are going to be stuck in their deficient faith forever. Jews that do not believe in Jesus as their Messiah. Muslims who have been told that Jesus was actually crucified and died and then his body was stolen, or or Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses that do not understand the nature of Jesus. There's all sorts of deficient faith around us. And what does Acts 19 remind us? That the Lord Jesus Christ breaks in to deficient faith and brings about saving faith. And it's not just other religions. It's not just Muslims and Jews and Mormons, but I know that there are nominal cultural Christians all over around us. Lifelong Lutherans, void of an understanding of Jesus. Christmas and Easter Catholics, we call these Chester Christians. They come only for Christmas and Easter. And then spiritual people that see Christianity as a glorified pep talk, like Christian radio always encouraging, nothing ever controversial, and void of any good theology. No offense if you love Christian radio. I, I had a neighbor that I was talking with, and, and we've tried to have some spiritual conversations, and he said to me kind of excitedly, I think he knows what I do, and, and well, he does know what I do, and, and he says, I just started going back to church. And I was like, oh, that's great. And he goes to one of those big ones here in the northern suburbs, and he says, I don't even believe anything they say. But it's just so encouraging still that I feel like everyone should just go just to get some encouragement. And my heart sank. And I thought, if you come here week after week 
And what you hear from me and from your other elders and pastors is encouraging stuff. And you don't believe a word we say, we have done you a disservice. You should not leave with encouragement if you don't believe what we say. We want you to hear in no uncertain terms that salvation is found alone in the person and work of Jesus. And if you give your life to him, you will have everlasting life. He will be with you. He's gentle and lowly and he sits on the throne and he rules and reigns and he'll transform you from the inside out. That he'll give you the Holy Spirit. And it probably won't be tongues or prophecy, but it will be a transformed heart, renewed affections, and the fruits of the Spirit will flow from your life. And it will be amazing. You will never, ever regret it. But if you do not believe, do not leave encouraged. You will be condemned to hell. And we don't say that lightly. We want you to hear in no uncertain terms that life hangs in the balance. We want you this morning, wherever you're at, to marvel afresh that God is right now, through the proclamation of Jesus, drawing sinners to himself. And that's what we see here in Acts 19. These 12 men get saved. And it's a microcosm of what Paul continues to do because he's reasoning and persuading in the synagogue, in the hall of Tyrannus, so that more and more would come to saving faith. And that's what we do every Sunday morning. We're, we're reasoning from the scriptures and trying to persuade you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give your life to him. We believe that there is no better thing in all the world than to come and submit yourself to the lordship of Jesus. So here in this first scene, we see the power of Jesus to save, to bring about saving faith when all that there was was a deficient faith. Now we come to scene two, a beating. They're beaten for misusing the name of Jesus. Go back to your Bibles with me. We're going to read 11 through 20 of Acts 19. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now this second scene unfolds almost comically. First, we're confronted with something very unusual. Objects such as an apron that Paul might have worn while tent-making, bring about healing and exorcisms. 
And this launches us into the story about the sons of Siva. Now, notice with me in verse 11, Luke is making extraordinary clear it's God that is doing these miracles. It says in verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's not Paul's innate power. It's not Paul's creativity. God was doing this work. I think what, what's trying to be communicated here in that aprons and handkerchiefs were, were able to be brought about and, and bring about healing, it was that God's power was so potent, so strong, so great upon Paul that God was even allowing those objects that had touched Paul to bring about healing. This is descriptive and not pre- pre- uh, prescriptive, but there's this residual effect, almost like aftershocks when you have an earthquake. And we, we get glimpses of this, don't we not? When, when Jesus speaks from afar, they say, I understand how you're under, uh, we're under authority and the spirits are under authority, so just speak the word. And Jesus speaks the word and people get healed from afar. Or when the, the lady comes up and touches Jesus' garment. Or Peter's shadow goes about and, and people under the shadow fall within the shadow and they get healed. But what this is trying to bring up is that there's this conflict brewing between the power of Jesus, the power of Jesus' name, and then sort of the mystical and mysterious magic and superstition that's at work in Ephesus. Which power is greater? Is it Jesus or is it sort of this mystical power and superstition at work in Ephesus? So this leads us to the story of the sons of Siva. And and it's pretty straightforward. There were itinerant Jewish exorcists in those days. They would travel from place to place and, and cast out demons and they would maybe use secret formulas or incantations. And, and while this seems highly unusual for us, I, I actually don't think it's that unusual. If you think about it, around the world today, we have people who are fortune tellers. And some of them are, you know, complete garbage. And some of them have some level of accuracy. And, and we're not entirely sure why. We, we have people who rely on horoscopes. And we have matchmakers. We have people who use voodoo dolls. There's local shamans that give advice or communicate with the spirit realm. There's witch doctors and all sorts of superstitious practices with roots in the spiritual realm. So here in this case, there's exorcists that go around casting out demons. And they likely heard about Paul and how he was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Maybe back in Acts 16, 18, where he says to that slave girl, I adjure you, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And at She came out at that very hour. So the story unfolds in a a kind of comedic, funny way, right? They invoke the name of Jesus, and they say, the, the, the man with the evil spirit says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Goes, proceeds to give him a, a real good beating, and they run away naked and afraid, bruised and bloodied, tearing apart their clothes, humiliated. What's Luke trying to show us here? He's showing us that Jesus is not a magical device. He's not a special potion. He's not a secret incantation. Jesus is a person who is alive and well. And he's exerting his power through his disciples. So you can't just use his name if you don't know him. Jesus works through his spirit in his people who know him and love him. 
In James 2.19, it says, even the demons believe and shudder. So the evil spirits recognize, we, we know Jesus. And if it was Jesus here, if it was Paul here that was casting us out, we'd listen. But we don't know you. And so they get a beating. There is power in the name of Jesus, but not when he's used as a magical potion and when his name is used in vain. But there's power in the name of Jesus when he's uttered by the lips of those who love him and know him and who are filled with his spirit. Now, it seems important to comment on exorcisms just for a moment. And I'm not going to give us a six-step plan on casting out demons this morning. Uh, we, We don't have time or space for that. But I think what we can see in this is not a discouragement to invoke or call upon the name of Jesus. But rather, those who are in Christ can indeed call upon and use the name of Jesus to drive out evil spirits. The Bible doesn't talk a lot about exorcisms. And so I don't want to kind of see demons under every rock and and get us kind of hypersensitive. And yet we know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual realm. And Ephesians talks a lot about that. Ephesians 6 in particular, where how do we engage in that spiritual battle? Well, we put on the whole armor of God, and what's our weapon? We wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so we have all that we need to combat the forces of darkness in God's Word. Do not ever underestimate the power of quoting the Bible, in fighting your spiritual battles. The word does the work. And we can call upon the name of Jesus for all those who know him and love him and are filled with his spirit. We can call upon his name for power and wisdom and grace and even against evil opposition. Now, what's the result of this showdown? It says in verse 17, it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Now, just notice how amazing this is. Two bad things happen. The the seven sons of Siva misuse the name of Jesus, and then an evil spirit beats those Jewish exorcists. Both kind of look bad, and, and yet... I think here's a perfect illustration of Romans 8, 28. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is the providence of God at work. In the midst of those two bad things, it results in people fearing God and praising and worshiping the name of Jesus. Fear fell upon them all. If Jesus' name has that much power so that the the demons themselves shudder, recognize Jesus, recognize Paul, and yet even bring kind of divine discipline to these sons of Siva who don't believe in Jesus or misusing the name of Jesus, then we really ought to worship and fear the name of Jesus and Jesus gets all the praise and glory and honor. It's, It's really a stunning reality that in the midst of all of these things. Paul doesn't even lift a finger in this story. God gets praise. And I think this is good news for us. 
Are, are you facing some difficulties or trials, some bad things happening in your life? The Lord Jesus Christ can use that, redeem it, turn it, even ordain it so that he brings about the greatest good in our lives. Not only did the people fear, but this was a pivotal moment. Whose power is greater? Magicians and and exorcists and superstitious practices or Jesus? It's this showdown. It shows that the believers who had come to faith, it says in verse 18, Now many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. So they don't sell them on eBay. They don't bring them to the pawn shop. They don't kind of set up a garage sale. They, They burn them because not only are they no longer valuable to us, we don't others to be led astray by these same things. Here, what we see is that Jesus breaks in with his sovereign power, but that Jesus is treasured. He's more precious than what these books or scrolls might have otherwise provided. See, these scrolls or or bound pages of spells and incantations would have been used to connect with the evil spiritual realm. And, And And, you know, often people try to figure out how much was this worth? 50,000 pieces of silver. If you were very conservative, um, well, it would equal a laborer's wages for 137 years in that time or 137 laborers for one year. And if we were to take the federal minimum wage where $7.25 and if you worked full time, you'd make maybe $15,000 multiplied that by 137, it would be about $2 million. So however you calculate it, it's a a massive sum of money for these believers, and they're burning it. Why? Because Jesus is infinitely more worthy than what these books could have provided. Here on display is the immeasurable worth, the infinite worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I have Jesus and I don't have these books, I'm going to be okay Because Jesus gives me all that I need. The one in us is greater than the one out there. And so, this morning, do our lives reveal that Jesus is more precious than all else? Do our finances, our phones, our internet histories, our time, our families, our entertainment, our diets, our prayer life, our Bible reading, and our leisure activities, do they reveal that Jesus is front and center and that he sits on the throne of our lives? Or are we potentially like some of these Ephesian believers who who have some things that we hide away in the closet, metaphorical closet, and, and we really treasure those? I think this morning, Acts 19 shining the light of Jesus, the power and the preciousness of Jesus. And we want you to see that there is nothing better, nothing greater than coming, exposing all these things, metaphorically burning them at the foot of the cross so that what you will have is Jesus. Dick Fast, who's now in heaven, isn't saying, I wish I would have spent a little bit more money on stuff for me. Did a little bit more alone time for me. He's saying, 
I have all that I need right now. And that is Jesus. He is infinitely more satisfying. I pray that we would see that this morning. Now let's look at the third scene, the brouhaha in opposition to the name of Jesus. 21 to 41. Um, I'll read it for us. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And some even of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open." And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, so it's a long passage, but it's pretty straightforward. And, and let me just mention, so Ephesus is probably at this time has about 200,000 residents. It was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. And the worship of Artemis was significant. So the temple of Artemis was four times as large as the Parthenon in Athens. And to this day, you can go and see the ruins of the temple of Artemis in modern-day Turkey. So uh, maybe one other thing worth mentioning is they used to have a festival called Artemisia, in honor of the goddess that included banquets and processions and sacrifices and athletic games and competitions. So this was a big deal in the city. 
And this points to the prominence of Artemis in, in regulating all that took place. Trade, customs, religion, and the historical nature of Luke's account in Acts. And while this account is fascinating, it's not really all that complex. Demetrius looks at the writing on the wall and says, if people keep believing in Jesus, they're going to stop buying our shrines and and trinkets and things that we're making in silver. And and from there, we're going to start losing money. And, And that's bad for us. And so they whip up this kind of spiritual, religious, kind of commercial riot and everyone's confused, and so they grab some of Paul's associates. Paul's prevented from going in. They're not able to make a defense. They grab Alexander for the Jews to maybe say, you know, Paul and his associates, they're, they're not part of us. He's not able to make a defense. They just cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours, and then the city clerk dismisses them. Paul hardly shows up in this. So why does Luke include this for us? I think it's two things. It's a reminder and it's a warning. First, it's a reminder that the gospel goes forth in the midst of opposition and hardships. When trials come, we don't go over, under, around, we go through them. If you look earlier in chapter 19, right at the end of scene 2, verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's how God does his work. That in the midst of opposition, God's gospel goes forth. We, don't, we ought not to pray just for easy days. But in the midst of opposition and angst and division and polarization, pray that the gospel would take root in hearts and minds. And so even in this day where we see lots of polarization, lots of division, pray with me that God would work in drawing people to himself because it prevails mightily. So first, it is a reminder. The gospel is increasing in the midst of trials. And I think this is especially a good reminder for us in the midst of this challenging season in the life of our church. We're celebrating 150 years, and it's a little funny to me that in the midst of this kind of excited 150 years, we just postponed the celebration because things are a little tricky in the life of our church. And we've shown videos after videos, right, of look at what God's done. You know what video we haven't done? Remember how God was faithful in 1993 when the choir director had an affair with the organist or the piano player, whatever it was, and God was faithful to us. Some of you don't know that happened, but it happened. God was faithful. Or when John Piper took his eight-month sabbatical and we said, who's possibly going to fill the pulpit? God was faithful. So this 150 years is not about how great Bethlehem is. It's not about how great of pastors or elders have come through over the years. It's not about the great ministries that have been launched from here, as great as all of those things are. It's not about the sermons that have been preached from this pulpit and from the other campuses. It's not about, oh, we have three stations along I-35 as gospel outposts, as great as that is. It's about Jesus in these 150 years, that he has been faithful to his church in the midst of opposition, in the midst of challenges. He will be faithful. It's not about us. 
It's so not about us. It's not about the precision of our statements. As much as I love this mission statement, it's not about, it's just not about us and what we do. It's about Jesus. It's about how he has been faithful. And over those 150 years, most of us have forgotten the really, really hard things. Like 1993, the year of tears. This will be another year of tears for many of us. And yet God is building his church. He will be faithful. You can bet your life on it. And you can bet your church on it. God is faithful. It's a reminder. It's a reminder. If a riot rolls through the city, and we've seen our fair share this year, we do not need to fret. The gospel of Jesus goes forth. Pray with me that many would get saved. The second is that it's a warning. It's a warning to beware the damning trap of financial prosperity. Demetrius loves one thing, his money. He doesn't care about Artemis. He knows gods made with human hands are not gods. If other people figure this out, we're out of business. And so he wants to hold on to his treasure. And here in this third scene, the contrast is stark. The Ephesian Christians who say, take all of these scrolls and books that would have been worth a lot, handwritten, rare. Let's burn them. Let's not even try to sell them to get some money back. Let's burn them so no one can be led astray by them. And here you have Demetrius holding on to his treasure in comparison. And unfortunately, he's going to miss out on the greatest treasure that there is in all the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, saving faith in him. This is a warning not to treasure that which is not worth treasuring. If you gain the whole world but lose your very soul, of what benefit is it to you? Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and Bill Gates. All the news articles that are written about them are like, oh, look at how great they are. They're, they're such to be admired, building these kingdoms. These men are the most to be pitied in all the world because they've insulated their lives with so much financial prosperity that it's that much more difficult to ever see their need for salvation in Jesus. Recently, there was this race, right? Richard Branson, I believe, Virgin Atlantic, and Jeff Bezos. Like, who can get into space first? And and I think Richard Branson won, and, you know, gobs of money goes into shooting some rocket off and getting into space. And, And here's the ironic part. They are floating off there in space with one of the best views of all that God has created. They can see the earth in all of its splendor and brilliance, and yet they miss the Lord of heaven and earth. Oh, that none of us would make that mistake this morning. You don't need to have a lot of money to make that mistake. For Demetrius, it wasn't a lot. Oh, that we would not treasure anything above the infinite worth of Jesus. One of the prayers we prayed back there is that God would satisfy us this morning with his steadfast love so that we would see that in the midst of everything around us, Jesus is the supreme treasure. There's nothing else worth more than him. And you can give your lives to him and you will never 
be in deficit if you're trusting in Jesus. This account of the riot in Ephesus reveals Jesus' saving power, his transformative worth, and reveals his infinite worth over and against the greatness of Artemis of the Ephesians. And the preaching of the gospel continues to upset the status quo in our world and uproots idolatry both in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. And I pray that if there's idolatry being harbored in any one of our hearts this morning, that we would let the Lord Jesus do that work of uprooting it so that our treasure would be Jesus. Acts 19 reveals the power and preciousness of Jesus. Jesus is all-powerful. He cannot be controlled or manipulated. So, I just want to end with a handful of questions. Do we believe in the power of God to save? Do we believe in his power to bring the Muslim and the Mormon and the Jehovah Witness and the the Jew and the nominal non-believer and the random spiritual religious person in our neighborhood to saving faith in Jesus? Do we believe in the power of this book, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation? If we do, I think it would change how we interact with those around us. Do we live as though Jesus is infinitely worthy? Do we treasure him above all else? Is there anything this morning that attempts to take center stage in our hearts and minds over and above Jesus? I pray that there would not be. If there is, let's figuratively bring it before the Lord, lay it down and burn it and lay down our idols for the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, our desire this morning is that we would see the the power of, and the infinite worth, the preciousness of Jesus Christ so that we would be changed and transformed into his likeness so that as we worship him, we would become more like him. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.